You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with your host, Bang and Dang. I am Bang Dang. I'm not Bang Dang. <laughs> I am Bang Dang's over there. And we're fresh off the Unabomber episode, which uh, is captivating the nation right now. <laughs> and then well, we're on to a, a whole nother bombing, but a whole bigger bombing and on a whole nother level than the Unabomber. <sighs> this one... One of the first actually tragedies uh, I remember seeing on the news as a as a little child. I was only like seven years old when this happened. So, right. um, yeah, terrible stuff. We're talking about the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, right after the uh, World Trade Center attack in the basement, and then a couple a year, years after that, and a year later, a freaking bomb at the Atlanta Olympics. Atlanta Olympics, beat, and. Um, yeah, homegrown terrorism. First, first uh, real look at domestic terrorism in um, United States. Nobody knew what domestic terrorism was until this uh, came about. So, this one's going to be a really long series. Not not as long as Wyatt Earp, but our second longest one, Wyatt Earp, was four episodes. This one's going to be three. We're going to do uh, this part now, all about McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh, and Terry Nichols, their background and life growing up leading up to uh, how they met and how they decided to uh, come to the conclusion that they wanted to bomb something. And then part two will be all about the bombing, obviously, and the um, aftermath of that. And then part three will be the trial of uh, both of them guys. And then the the ending, the aftermath of the whole situation and what has been done since then, put in place to prevent stuff like this and all that good stuff. But three solid parts of nothing but craziness just go take a look at what was in that building and you'll see why it was bombed oh we'll get to the conspiracy part in part three don't worry um <laughs> yeah there's tons of conspiracies surrounding this um probably one of the most conspirized i mean besides 9-11 now and jfk what's the first one yeah jfk and this these those three are probably the biggest conspiracy cases involving stuff like this in america mm-hmm. um yeah, Timothy Mc- Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, Michigan. Well, at least Terry Nichols was. Right. Timothy McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York. The only son and the second of three children of Irish Americans, Mildred and Mickey Noreen. Oh. And William McVeigh. In 1866, McVeigh, McVeigh's great-great-grandfather, Edward McVeigh, immigrated from Ireland and settled in Niagara County. Okay. After their parents divorced, when McVeigh was 10 years old, he was raised by his father in Pendleton, New York. Pendleton, New York. This is all by the Buffalo area, right? I believe so. Niagara County, that's up there, yeah. McVeigh claimed to have been a target of bullying at school. Took refuge in a fantasy world where he imagined retaliating against the bullies. Well, there we go already. That's never a good thing. At the end of his life, he stated his belief that the United States government is the ultimate bully. Mm. Most who knew Timmy remember him as being very shy and withdrawn, as with most of these characters we come across. Right. While a few described him as an outgoing and playful child who withdrew as an adolescence. Well, 
He is said to have only one girlfriend when he was younger. He later told Turner's that he did not have any idea how to impress the girls. Yeah, well, uh, blom bombing a uh, hmm. building and tearing a third of it off is not going to do anything. I mean, I don't know. I guarantee he got some uh, love letters. You got those prison uh, groupies. Yeah, but he killed mostly children, so I don't know well, if he it got wasn't those. mostly children. It was. No. We'll get there. <laughs> well, well, it was a children's. There was a daycare in daycare the building. Daycare in it, yeah, that's right. While in high school, McVeigh became interested in computers and hacked into government computer systems on his Commodore 64 under the handle The Wanderer, taken from the song Dion. Nope. Okay. In his senior year, he was named Most Promising Computer computer Program. Hey. Oh, good for him. Of Star Point Central High School, but had relatively poor grades until his 1986 graduation. He was introduced to firearms by his grandfather. Thanks, grandfather. Mm-hmm. McVeigh told people of his wish to become a gun shop owner oh. and sometimes took firearms to school to impress his classmates. Oh, no. He became intensely interested in guns' rights as well as the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution oh, after he graduated from high school and read magazines such as Soldier of Fortune. These are the type of people the loony liberals cry about. Yeah. Well, that's what they hang on. Right. These, these guys. Well, Timmy briefly attended Bryant and Stratton College. Where's that at? New York. New York. Ohio, Virginia, Wisconsin, and online. Buffalo. Yeah, he briefly attended Bryant and Stratton College before dropping out. After dropping out of college, McVeigh worked as an armored car guard and was noted by co-workers as being obsessed with guns. One co-worker recalled an instance where McVeigh came to work looking like Pancho Villa as he was wearing bandoliers. That should have been a sign right there. Why are you coming to work looking like that? (laughs) (laughs) I guess uh, he was an armored he probably had right. a gun since he was a guard, was, right? Right. In May 19th. They got guns. You think so? Armored. Yeah. Hell yeah, they do. Crazy. I know their whole vehicle is like bulletproof, right? Well, he was only 20 at the time and actually less than 20 here. So he's even allowed to right. own a gun. Mm. What's New York state law? I don't know. Mm, in May 1988, at the age of 20, McVeigh enlisted in the United States Army and attended basic training and advanced individual training at the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay. While in the military, McVeigh used much of his spare time to read about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. Of course he did. McVeigh was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt at a KKK rally. Oh, no. Where they were objecting to black servicemen who wore black power t-shirts around a military installation. I mean... Primarily in the Army. I mean... Well, hey, if you're going to allow them to wear black power, then anything else goes, right? Right. How about not allow any of it? Exactly. It's an Army. Jeez. Be all you can be. Right. Except for yourself. In in your fatigues. Right. (laughs) McVeigh was a top scoring gunner with a 25 millimeter cannon of the Bradley fighting vehicles used by the 1st Infantry Division and was promoted to sergeant. Good for him. After being promoted, McVeigh earned a reputation of assigning undesirable work to black servicemen (laughs) and using racial slurs. Yeah, I don't think that was a good idea. (laughs) Right. He was stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas before being deployed on Operation Desert Storm. Oh, he went over to uh, Iraq. In an interview before his execution, McVeigh said that he decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire on his first day in the war, and he celebrated it. Dang, dude. Took his head off with a cannonball. Mm, I would hurt. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I probably wouldn't even feel it. Right. He said he was later shocked to be ordered to execute surrendering prisoners and to see carnage on the road while leaving Kuwait City Uh after U.S. troops routed the Iraqi army. McVeigh received several service medals, including the Bronze Star, National Defense Service Medal, the Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, and the Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. Oh, McVeigh uh, aspired to join the United States Army Special Forces after returning from the Gulf War. He entered the selection program but washed out. 
on the second day of the 21-day assessment and selection course for the Special Forces. Yeah, you got to be a special guy to do for yeah, that. Yeah, you got to be real special, <laughs> and you got to be a force. Right. McVeigh decided to leave the Army and was honorably discharged in 1991. Nice. Well, good for him there, huh? McVeigh then started to write letters to local newspapers complaining about taxes. He says, taxes are a joke. Regardless of what political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to the government mismanagement. They mess up. We suffer. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels. With no slowdown in sight, he says, is a civil war imminent. Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. McVeigh also wrote to Representative John J. LaFalse. He's a Democrat in New York, complaining about the arrest of a woman for carrying mace. It is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. Firearms restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. Right. Hmm. Stupid. I don't see why mace is even outlawed in a lot of places. It is. While visiting friends in Decker, Michigan, McVeigh reportedly complained that the Army had implanted a microchip into his butt Uh-oh. so that the government could keep track of him. All right. McVeigh worked long hours in a dead-end job and felt that he did not have a home. He sought romance, but his advances were rejected by a co-worker, and he felt nervous around women. Oh, jeez. He believed that he brought too much pain to his loved ones. He grew angry and frustrated at his difficulties in finding a girlfriend, and he took up obsessive gambling. Oh, well, that'll help. Unable to pay gambling debts, he took a cash advance and then defaulted on his repayments. Oh, of course he did. He began looking for a state that didn't have heavy government regulation or high taxes. Good luck. Right. He became enraged when the government told him that he had been overpaid $1,058 while in the Army, and he had to pay the money back. That's ridiculous. Man. I mean, come on. He wrote an angry letter to the government saying, Go ahead. Take everything I own. My Take my dignity. Feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. <laughs> McVeigh introduced his sister to anti-government literature, but his father had little interest in these views. He moved out of his father's house and into an apartment that had no telephone. Okay. This made it impossible for his employer to contact him for overtime assignments. Oh, too bad. <laughs> he quit the National Rifle Association, NRA, believing that it was too weak on gun rights. Yeah, they are a little witchy-washy and flip-floppy on shit. Right. 1993, McVeigh drove to Waco. Oh, geez. During the Waco siege to show his support. At the scene, he distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, When guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. Hmm. He told a student news reporter, The government is afraid of the guns people... The government is afraid of guns people have because they have to control all the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the mm-hmm. people. You give them an inch and they take a mile. I mean, I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government. Mm-hmm. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful. And people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. I mean, everything this guy's saying is spot on truth right now. So he ain't sound too crazy to me yet. <laughs> wow. For the five months following the Waco siege, <laughs> McVeigh worked at gun shows, handed out free cards printed with Lon Horochi's name and address. And hope that somebody in the Patriot movement would assassinate the sharpshooter. Jeez. Oh, I think it's Horiuchi. I think it's Horiuchi is an FBI sniper, and some of his official actions had drawn controversy. Specifically, specifically, his shooting and killing of Randy Weaver's wife while she held an infant child. Yeah, that oh, was, that that was, was the ones that they were holed up in the cabin. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, bad. yeah. Uh, what, what was the name of that? It was like the. Um, I forget what it was called. The Siege of. It was right. Before or right. after Waco? It was something, Little Rock, or Landing something. Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge, yeah. yeah. Ruby Ridge is uh, all yeah, FBI. It was, it was one year before Waco, so. That's all set up by FBI shit. Mm-hmm. And Marshalls. Garbage. Just like what happened up in, never mind. McVeigh wrote hate mail to Horiuchi, suggesting that what goes around comes around, mofo. Oh. 
McVeigh later considered putting aside his plan to target the Mara building. Mara. The Mara building? To target Huyuchi. I can't even say the guy's name. Horiuchi. Or a member of his family instead. So he was going to uh, take out this guy at all costs, right? Apparently. It's what he considered before blowing up the uh, federal building. Mm. McVeigh became a fixture on the gun show circuit, traveling to 40 states and visiting about 80 gun shows. Dang. He found that the further west he went, the more anti-government sentiment he encountered, at least until he got to what he called the People's Socialist Republic of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah. McVeigh sold survival items and copies of the Turner Diaries, which is a awe... Uh, a novel that depicts a violent revolution in the United States, which leads to the overthrow of the federal government, nuclear mm. war, and ultimately a race war, huh. and leads to the systematic extermination of non-white. Um, one author said, in the gun show culture, McVeigh found a home, though he remained skeptical of some of the most extreme ideas being bandied around. He'd like talking to people there about the United Nations, the federal government, and possible threats to the American liberty. Okay, now he's getting a little wacky. Yeah. McVeigh had a road atlas, hand-drawn designations of the most likely places for nuclear attacks and considered buying property in Seligman, Arizona. Seligman? I think it's Seligman. Which he determined to be in a nuclear-free zone. Hmm. He lived with Michael Fortier Fortier in uh, Kingman, Arizona, and the two became so close that he served as the best man at Fortier's wedding. McVeigh experimented with cannabis and meth. Well, the meth did do it right there. (laughs) After first researching their effects in an encyclopedia, he still did it. Some people like meth, man. He was never as interested in drugs as 48 was, though. And one of the reasons they parted ways was that McVeigh grew tired of... McVeigh? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) McVeigh. McVeigh grew tired of 48's drug habits. I mean, come on. We around a meth head all the time. In April of 93, McVeigh headed for a farm in Michigan where former roommate... In the Army, Terry Nichols lived. And between watching coverage of the Waco siege on TV, Nichols and his brother began teaching McVeigh how to make explosives by combining household chemicals and plastic jugs. Ooh. The destruction of the Waco compound enraged McVeigh and convinced him that it was time to take action. He was particularly angered by the government's use of CS gas on women and children. He had been exposed to the gas as part of his military training and was familiar with its effects. Mm-hmm. The disappearance of certain evidence, such as the bullet-riddled steel and reinforced door to the complex, led him to suspect a cover-up. Obviously. Mm. Right. That's another one we got to get into. Oh, man. Waco. Jeez. You're opening a lot of can of worms there. <laughs> these, these next few weeks might be... Uh, <laughs> popping for us. Jeez, old Pete. McVeigh's anti-government rhetoric became more radical. Yeah, I can see that happening. He began to sell Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives hats riddled with bullet holes and a flare gun that he had said that he said could shoot down an ATF helicopter. Really? A flare gun? I mean, yes. He produced videos detailing government's actions at Waco, handed out pamphlets with titles such as U.S. Government Initiates Open Warfare Against American People. And Waco Shootout evokes memory of Warsaw, 1943. He began changing his answering machine, greeting every couple of weeks to various quotes by Patrick Henry, such as, give me liberty or give me death. That's the only one they quote. (laughs) He began... And others. Right. Do something, put a quote that we've never heard before. Jeez, old Pete. He began... Isn't that on, uh, like, Maine's flag or something? It's on a lot. He began experimenting with making pipe bombs and other small explosive devices. The government imposed new firearms restrictions in 1994, which McVeigh believed threatened his livelihood. 
Uh-oh. Yeah, man, when you're working at the gun show circuit. Yep. Uh, McVeigh dissociated himself from his boyhood, boyhood friend, Steve Hodge, by sending him a 23-page farewell letter. Dang. <laughs> he proclaimed his devotion to the United States Declaration of Independence, explaining in detail what each sentence meant to him. Oh, jeez, okay. that would have been wow. a nightmare to read. <laughs> McVeigh declared that those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason and domestic enemies and should be should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. Okay. And I will I will because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it is what it stands for in every bit of my heart, soul and being. Okay. I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, mm. Steve. <laughs> okay, Steve. Steve. I have come to peace with myself, my God and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil, free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. Jeez, mm. Steve. Better not cross him. Wow. Yeah, now he's getting a little freaky. It's weird. If you don't want to be friends with somebody, just don't talk to him no more. You don't have to send him a letter. I mean, unless he knows a lot more of the inside shit than we do, you know? It's like this government is just crazy. He might. That's why he didn't want to have friends with him no more. Probably didn't want to go along with his... uh cycle plan that Timmy Timmy was cooking up here. He's like, dude, you're getting a little weird. All right. He's like, you know what? I'm going to write you a letter. Strongly worded. Yeah. McVeigh felt the need to personally reconnoiter sites of rumored conspiracy. You know how I know that word? I think <laughs> one of our very first episodes. Reconnoiter. We're going to figure it out. No. No? No. Sure. That was on um, Deadwood episode, Reconnoiter in the Rim. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason why I know that. Right. McVeigh felt he needed to personally reconnoiter sites of rumored conspiracies. He visited Area 51 in order to defy government restrictions on photography and went to the Gulfport, Mississippi to determine the veracity of rumors about United Nations operations. Mm. United Nations has been around. Yeah, they've been here forever, guys. It's actually Russian troops in the United States, too. These turned out to be false, but it did not. The Russian vehicles on the site were being configured for use in UN-sponsored humanitarian aid efforts. Hmm, so they say. <laughs> Around this time, McVeigh and Nichols began making bulk purchases of ammunition nitrate. Not ammunition nitrate, ammonium nitrate. And agricultural fertilizer for resale to survivorless. Then they, they can't even sell those no more, can they? Buy it. I'm sure you put on some sort of list. Right, since rumors were circulating that the government was preparing to ban it. Oh, look at that. So they got gathered as much ammonium nitrate and uh, fertilizer as they possibly could. Ammonium nitrate is a fertilizer. And fertilizer. No. A purchase of ammonium oh, nitrate. And. and, there's, and. No D. there's no D. It's just an and. Right. <laughs> McVeigh told 48 of his plans to blow up a federal building, but 48 declined to participate. He's like, dude, No. Uh, he also told his wife about the plans, 48 did. Right. McVeigh composed two letters to the ATF, uh, the first titled Constitutional Defenders, and the second ATF Read. He denounced government officials as fascist tyrants and stormtroopers, and he warned, ATF, all you tyrannical motherfuckers, that's him saying yeah. that, not us, will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous actions against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg War Trials. Mm-hmm. It's getting rough, man. It's just him, too. Jeez. McVeigh also wrote a letter to recruit a customer named Stephen Colburn. A man with nothing left to lose is a very dangerous man, and his energy, anger, can be focused toward a common righteous goal. What I'm asking you to do, then, is sit back and be honest with yourself. Do you have kids or a wife? Would you back out at the last minute to care for the family? 
Are you interested in keeping your firearms for their current slash future monetary value? Or would you drag that 06 through rock? Hot six, probably. 30 hot six, I would imagine, yeah. Or would you drag that hot six through rock, swamp, and cactus to get off the needed shot? In short, I'm not looking for talkers. I'm looking for fighters. And if you are a fed, think twice. Think twice about the Constitution you are supposedly enforcing. Is it enforcing freedom and oxymoron? And think twice about catching us with our guard down. You will lose just like Deacon did. And your family will lose. Right. How do you how do you enforce freedom? Right. Honestly, that's a good point there, McVeigh. First time you hear me agree with him. <clears throat> McVeigh began announcing that he had progressed from the propaganda phase to the action phase. Uh oh. He wrote to his Michigan friend Gwenda Strider, said I have certain other militant talents that are in short supply and greatly demanded. McVeigh later said he considered a campaign of individual assassination with eligible targets, including Attorney General Janet Reno, Judge Walter S. Smith Jr. of Federal District Court who handled the Branch Davidian trial, and Lon Haruchi, Horiuchi, who was a member of the FBI hostage rescue team, who shot and killed Vicki Weaver, who we said, yeah. uh, at Ruby, Rod, Ruby Ridge. He said uh, he wanted Reno to accept full responsibility indeed, not just words. Mm. Such an assassination seemed too difficult, and he decided that federal agents had become soldiers. He decided since federal agents had become soldiers, he should strike at them at their command centers. Oh, okay. Hmm. According to McVeigh's authorized biography, he decided that he could make the loudest statement by bombing a federal building. After the bombing, he was ambivalent about his act and the deaths he caused. As he said in letters to his hometown newspaper, he sometimes wished that he had carried out a series of assassinations against police and government officials instead. Hmm. Maybe he should have went with his original plan. Yes. So now we got a little bit into the look of uh, the life and into the life and uh, messed up mind of Timothy McVeigh leading up to all this stuff. I don't know how this guy was getting doing all this stuff and not on like no radar of the FBI or anything like that. They had to have known that he was at all these gun shows and pants passing out all these pamphlets and shit. Of course they did. Of course they knew. Well, old Terry Nichols, on the other hand, was born in Lapeer, Michigan. He was raised on a farm, the third of four children of Joyce and Robert Nichols. Growing up, he had helped his parents on the farm, learning to operate and maintain the equipment. Good old farm boy right. life so far. According to the Denver Post, he also cared for injured birds and animals. Oh. Look at this guy. At least he's not killing them. Right. Look at this guy. Stand-up citizen. All right. Well, Terry Nichols <laughs> attended Lapeer High School, where he took elective classes in crafts and business law. Throughout school, friends characterized him as shy, of course. Mm-hmm. While in high school, he played junior varsity football. He wrestled and was a member of the ski club. Well, this dude seems socialized. Right. His brother James, who self-published a 400-page book about the bombing, has stated that Terry was good at artwork and book smart. He graduated from high school in 1973 with a 3.6 grade point average, with ambitions of becoming a physician. Good for him, Terry Nichols. Should have stayed on that uh, path there, bud. Yeah. Well, Nichols enrolled at Central Michigan University. He completed one term of 13 credit hours with B grade average. He had C's in biology, chemistry, and trigonometry, Ooh. a B in literature, and an A in archery. Uh, oh, jeez. Uh, nice. <laughs> in 1974, you can take archery. <laughs> Okay. 1974, after another brother, Leslie, was badly burned in a fuel tank explosion on the farm, he offered to give him skin for grafts. Oh. Look at them. He tried farming with his brother James for a while, but they did not get along. He felt his brother was too bossy. Right. Later, he moved to Colorado and obtained a license to sell real estate in 1976. Good for him. Soon after he closed on his first big sale, his mother told him she needed his help on the farm, so he returned to Michigan. Oh, jeez. Well, we gotta, go back. Ah. gotta go back to the farm. 1980, Nichols met real estate agent Lena Walsh, a twice-divorced mother of two who was five years his senior. They married and had a son, Joshua, in 1982. 
During the marriage, Nichols engaged in a succession of part-time and short-term jobs, carpentry work, managing a grain elevator, selling life insurance, and also real estate. According to Lena, she was the one with the career. Nichols had a house. Oh, Nichols was a house husband. She was, who, a, right. she was a real estate agent. Yeah, I guess. She was probably bringing in the bucks. Right. Uh, Nichols was a house husband who spent most of his time at home with the children, cooking and gardening. Oh, <laughs> good for that guy. <laughs> well... Unfortunately for Nichols, he never liked the farm life. And in 1988, at the age of 33, tried to uh, 33 tried to escape it by listening to the United States Army. Yeah, a little too old for that. Yeah, he was sent to Fort Benning next to Columbus, Georgia, for basic training. As the oldest man in his platoon, he had difficulty with the physical aspect of training. Yeah, and was sometimes called Grandpa by the other men. Well, of course, he was. However, how ill he was soon made the platoon guide because of his age. Timothy McVeigh was in his platoon. Oh, look at that! And they quickly became close friends. All right. They had a common background. Both men grew up in white rural areas and disliked working with black people. Oh, geez. Both had tried college for a while and had parents who were divorced. They shared political views and interests in gun collecting and the survivalist movement. Okay. The two were later stationed together at Fort Riley in Junction City, City, Kansas, where they met and became friends with their future accomplice, Michael Fortier, who uh, McVeigh lived with for a while. Wow. And it's all coming full circle for these guys, huh? All coming together. Terry Nichols' wife filed for divorce soon after he joined the Army. Due to a conflict over child care, he requested and was given a hardship discharge in May of 1989 so he can return home and take care of his son, who was seven years old at the time. As he departed huh. the Army, he told a fellow soldier that he would be starting his own military organization soon and that would have an unlimited supply of weapons. <laughs> okay. In 1990, Nichols married a 17-year-old girl, Marif Torres, from the Philippines, whom he met through a mail-order bride agency. <laughs> no shit. When she arrived in Michigan several months later, she was pregnant with another man's child. Oh, no. <laughs> no, you get what you get, bud. Right. Uh, the child oh, died no. <laughs> at the age of two when he suffocated in a plastic bag oh. while Nichols was babysitting him. Mm. Oh, yeah, mm. just happens to do that, right? None of his other kids suffocated in a plastic right. bag. Marif initially suspected foul play, but there was no bruises or signs of trauma to the child. Death was ruled accidental. Wow. Nichols and Marif had two more children during their marriage. Dang. Nichols and Torres frequently visited the Philippines where she was attending a local college working on a degree in physical therapy. He sometimes traveled to the Philippines alone while she remained in Kansas. Why? Hmm. Where the hell is he getting all this money from? Right. Nichols left a cryptic note and package of documents with his ex-wife, Lena, which is now her last name is Padilla, prior to one of his many visits to the Philippines. Upon returning from the visit to learn that she had prematurely opened a letter instructing her what to do in the event of his death. He made a series of telephone calls to a Cebu City boarding house. Nichols and Torres divorced after his arrest. Marie returned to Philippines with the children. I mean, yeah, might as well. Nichols' anti-government views developed and grew over the years. He spent most of his adult life in the Lapeer and Sanilac County areas of Michigan, where his mistrust and resentment of the federal government was common. Where? Mistrust was common in that area, apparently. Yeah, Lapeer. Yeah. Uh, especially after bank foreclosures of many farms during the 1980s. Neighbors said he attended meetings of anti-government groups, experimented with explosives, and got more radical as time went on. Always happens. Dude, Michigan is known to have the most malicious. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Nichols began to adhere to a variation of the sovereign citizen ideology. In February of 1992, he attempted to renounce his U.S. citizenship by writing to the local county clerk in Michigan, stating that the political system was corrupt and declaring himself a non-resident alien. Ooh. Can you do that? I think you can. Several months later, he appeared in court and tried to avoid responsibility for some of his credit card bills. He owed approximately forty grand, refusing to come before the bench and shouting at the judge that the government had no jurisdiction over him. I won't deport his ass. Where are you going to take him to, though? 
October 19th, 1992, he signed another document renouncing his United States citizenship. May 1993, Nichols appeared before a county judge regarding the $8,421 unpaid credit card debt. He also renounced his driver's license. <laughs> okay. In the fall of 1993, Nichols and McVeigh, who were living at the farm, became business partners, selling weapons and military surplus at gun shows. For a while... Where are they getting this? Right. For a while, they lived an internet life following the gun shows from town to town. Okay. Well, he then went to Las Vegas. The gun carnies. Gun show carnies. Yep. Nichols, Nichols then went to Las Vegas to try working in construction, but failed. Hmm. Next, he went to Central Kansas and was hired in March of 94 as a ranch hand in Marion, Kansas. Okay. On uh, March nine In March of 94, he was sent a letter. He sent a letter to the clerk of Marion County, Kansas, saying he was not subject to the laws of the U.S. government and was asked... And asked his employer not to withhold any federal taxes from his check. Good luck with that. Right. His employer said Nichols was hardworking but had unusual political views. In the fall of 1994, he quit his job telling his employer he was going into business with McVeigh. Oh, look at that. And this, he goes back to Michigan on the farm. And these two conjure up some uh, materials to start putting their bomb together, get their plans in place. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Hmm. Got some pretty messed up guys here. Yeah, these two, these two are uh, crazy mm. already. I mean, not to mention the shit they seen in Iraq. Well, McVeigh, well, McVeigh, uh, and Nichols. That guy's just weird. Yeah, that guy's weird. There's no, nothing. Not, there. And McVeigh it, was actually sound decent at first, like credible for a minute. Well, I mean, if you're ordering a mail order bride, then you obviously have something wrong with you. Sorry, that's the first. <laughs> that's the first no no for me right there. Sorry, Terry. Especially a Philippine. Everybody knows you get Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Russian mail order. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to do it. This one's shorter. This one's a little shorter than uh, we usually do, but we just wanted to give you the quick background on both of these uh, psychos before we get into the real um, meat and potatoes, as they say, of the actual Oklahoma City bombing, which next episode, next week, will be... All about the materials they gather up, how they make the bomb, why they um, chose what they chose, I guess you could say, and everything leading up to the actual bombing, the bombing itself, and a little bit of the aftermath of that. And then um, that's probably going to be at least an hour, probably a little bit more than an hour long. And then uh, our final episode will be about the the trials for both Nichols and McVeigh and the aftermath and all that stuff of bunch of policies and stuff that was put into place after these guys did bunch all this of stuff. policies and the um this dude was complaining these well, especially mcveigh about how much government 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 well what they did was made it worse pretty much hmm. but if you uh which we'll see they get a statement from mcveigh and this is while he's in prison and he actually thinks that he did good oh, so this guy he's, the guy this guy remains a psycho through the whole thing but yeah oh, wow. that's gonna be part two and three got lots lots more stuff Everybody's heard of the bombing, right. but have you heard of the inside story of the bombing? Mm. You don't hear it on the news, the little 30-second news clips. And these ain't no little uh, flash bombs like uh, the Unabomber guy and uh, the one dude. What was the other guy's name? They just put him in the theater seats and stuff. Oh, the um, Mad Bomber. Yeah, the Mad Bomber. Oh, these ain't no blow-your-finger-off type of stuff. Well, no. blow your finger off. <laughs> <laughs> These are blow the whole front facade of a building off. So. Right. Uh, I believe, we'll get there, but I believe um, 
the bomb was somewhere around 3,000, 4,000 pounds. That was ridiculous, dude. So it had ridiculous. To be, he, had, he literally had to put it in a rider truck. So Right. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Crazy stuff. That's what we'll get to on next episode. And then, like I said, the trial and all that stuff on the third episode. That's what we got going on for the next three weeks. So strap in. Make sure you guys are uh, are coming back for those next two episodes because that's said meat and potatoes. That's what you guys are here for anyways. Right. right. But, uh, yeah, that's part one, all about the backgrounds of Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh. And they are some psycho, psycho people. Psycho, psycho mofos. If you guys are interested in uh, other history, we do another show called Battles of the American Civil War, where we go through the first battle all the way up to the very last battle of the Civil War, battle by battle. Skirmish by skirmish. Skirmish by skirmish. And basically, what's the word I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. Basically, document the war through battles. So that's all the war. I mean, that is war. (laughs) (laughs) Through the battles. Right. With no big... No battles too big or small for us. We do them all. Well, That's not even our um, catchphrase, but it, anything and everything, everything and every war, <laughs> every skirmish and any war, or anyway, either battle. <laughs> I'm not selling this show very no, good. No, not at all. Yeah, either way, we go through every battle from the Fort Sumter all the way up to whatever the last battle was. Uh, who knows? Yeah, but we can go up to Adamax. Adamax. Apotomix. Uh, uh Yeah, we're like in September of 1861, almost rounding out 1861. We got four hard more years to go. This is like uh, the exposition. The uh, exposition. This is like uh, spring training. Pre-season. Battle, yeah. It's like it's pre-season. Right, for the real war. We didn't know the bad ones out right now. 1862, you're about to see a war. Yeah, in the beginning of the war, I mean, stupid... Generals didn't know what they were doing. Um, tactics were dumb. They didn't know how to use their weapons. Poorly trained soldiers. All that stuff. Nothing's going on. And uh, oh, think about it. Are, the South, just newly formed. Still, they had a bunch of right. They had a bunch of each state, slow trees and all that. Well, no, they, yeah, but they were still well trained. Right. Not well trained, but they knew it. I don't know what I'm trying to say. They weren't like didn't start from scratch. They already existed. Right, but. They didn't know their ideology or whatever. Their tactics, something like that. Either way, yeah. Battles of the American Civil War. <laughs> Go check that out. And we will be back next week for the actual uh, building of the bomb and the bombing and the casualties, unfortunately, and the aftermath of that. So that's uh, that's next week. We'll be back for another episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers. To them, we're Mouth of Michiganders with Bing Dang. <laughs>